everyone, this is Sydney Otomanchuk from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Christopher Perry, Associate Professor with the School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University, and Dr. Humira Osman, Vice President of Research and Public Policy at Muscular Dystrophy Canada. They recently presented a webinar explaining how the integration of clinical, industrial, and not-for-profit advocacy partners with preclinical research labs offers great potential to improve our research impact. Let's jump in. First question uh, for both of you, perhaps. Uh, Your proposals are interesting. Have you ever thought of how a disease like Duchenne is confronted or cared for in different countries. Um, they feel that their opinion is it would help actually enrich your work. Mm-hmm. I have an example of that. Maybe perhaps I can start. So um, MDC together with Canadian researchers um, received funding from the International Joint Rare Disease Program. It's a European uh, Joint Rare Disease Program, EJRPD. And um, we received funding to work together with researchers in Italy and in Germany on a project to look at transition experiences for boys and young men with Duchenne um, going from pediatric to adult care. And as part of this project, we've included six patient and parent partners in Canada and parent and partner uh, partners from Italy and Germany as well. And it's and while this is a clinical research example that I'm providing, it's been so eye opening seeing um, patients and parents talk about their experiences transitioning from pediatric to adult care um, and even even seeing the differences of how the different countries include patients in their research teams as well. But it has been quite enriching already in the first phase of this project. Fantastic. Okay. Um, yeah, Chris, I don't, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I've, I've, often, I've actually thought about that and, and um, wondered, if, wondered if that would be in line with some of the expertise with colleagues here at our School of Kinesiology and and our muscle health research center who are more um population level research on on um even even patient uh how do you how do you put this um clearly i'm not an expert um the you know we 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 live and work in north york toronto which is a, a lot of immigrants from a lot of different countries and so what i've learned from colleagues with their research and other diseases is that even the uptake of medical advice can can differ uh whether patients are are receptive to to what what maybe our medical system is is prescribing and and doing and so on and and again i'm not an expert but i think there's a number of colleagues even in our group that would be able to to participate in research similar to what dr osmond's talking about um, not just in other countries but what they're bringing with them here in terms of perceptions and practices and and uh, comfort levels with the health um, going through diagnostic procedures. So a bit tangential to this, but those are the, I'm, I, I think it's a great question being asked and it's not our area of research, but I think that must be done. And, and I've seen that from my colleagues. Yeah, really great point. Thanks. All right, um, our next question, 
do you foresee patient engagement becoming required or encouraged in future grant proposals? And if mm -hmm. so, how does a preclinical lab go about finding an industry partner to be able to reach those patient populations? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you like to go, Dr. Osman, or would you like me to? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think if it's the speed at which it's picking up, um, at, at clinical grant panels, I mean, I think it's only a matter of time. Um, I've certainly not heard any speaking, uh, any, I've not read any memos, announcements, or anything that it's coming, but but it's inevitable. And I think that's, you know, it's a new challenge and a good challenge for preclinical researchers to think this way. So I, I you know, it's I, um, the sooner the sooner we are thinking this way, the sooner we'll be prepared for that. But I also don't want that to be the primary motivation. Like I truly believe we're going to improve the primary outcome designs of our preclinical research by engaging this process, whether or not the grant panels require it. But yeah, I do think it's also practical. It's going to be coming. Yeah, definitely uh, agree. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back in terms of the sex and gender training that was first offered by CIHR, and now sex and gender analysis is included in the research grants that are um, in the research applications through CIHR funding opportunities. So I, I do I do think that over time, it will be something that will be required. And um, in terms of how industry partners or um, researchers can go about reaching out to a patient advocacy organization, a patient organization like a Muscular Dystrophy Canada could be a great way to connect with um, the patient community and uh, patient research partners. And, and sometimes it could even be organically as well as if it in clinical research, a participant can then a participant can then be returned on to come back and serve as a partner or organically in, in different um, events like the walk and roll that Dr. Perry mentioned, uh, community events as well. But it is nice to um, to see this being included because I think it will encourage people to think about it at the time of, of writing a grant. We are currently um, have an open call for um, uh, clinical and preclinical uh, research projects. And we've now said we encourage that uh, you include patient and parent partners in, in your um, funding proposal. And so this is the first year we've done that. We haven't mandated it, but we look forward to seeing how, um, how researchers include that in their proposal. Yeah, I think um, some may think that the conversation that you guys are having today is somewhat early, but as a matter of fact, I think it's perfect timing because if this does become required, um, this is the time for people to start looking out into who they could be connecting with. Um, and then if this does become a requirement, they already are ahead of the game. So I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, okay, we have another question directed specifically to your research, um, Dr. Perry. Mitochondria seem to be affected by many physiological conditions, including muscular dystrophy, aging, cancer, etc. Does that suggest it's difficult to define mitochondria as a mechanism? Would it be rather a response to stress? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. We just published a review article last year that was sort of a hybrid perspective on just because a mitochondrial function may change doesn't mean it's um, a bad thing. It could have been a stress response. And what do we mean by that? If there was an underlying metabolic problem, and let's put that a little more simply, let's say the cell isn't producing enough energy, um, or supplying enough energy for muscle contraction, 
Well, mitochondria are very plastic. And what we mean by that is they're very adaptable. They're going to sense a metabolic problem and they're going to change. And, and the intent is usually to change in a way that helps the cell fix that energy problem. Now, when you go and measure that response at the same time as you're measuring muscle weakness, it might be tempting to think, oh, well, at the time of muscle weakness, I actually saw this mitochondrial pathway change. Therefore, my hypothesis it was causal. But it actually could be the exact opposite. It could actually be that, no, that change was actually an intention. And we have a review article on that last year. Catherine Bellissimo is the first author um, in, in the American Journal of Physiology, Cell Physiology 2022, for those that want to look it up. And so how do we go about designing studies to establish causality? And I think that's uh, very important. Um, another benefit of partnering with industry, if you uh, build those relationships, is the compounds they have are not just potential therapies to explore at a preclinical level to decide whether it should go to clinical trial. It's also the exact experimental tool you need to establish causality. So if we add a drug that changes a pathway in the mitochondria and it improves muscle force, I think we just established causality. That mitochondria are, that mitochondrial response was a mechanism of muscle weakness. But if we add the drug and we do successfully change, uh, uh, change the mitochondria in a particular way, and there's absolutely no force uh, effect on muscle force, well, that's interesting. I wouldn't call that a mechanism now. And that becomes a basic science question of why did the mitochondria adapt and, and why isn't it affecting force? So the very tools we're using to develop therapies are also the tools, pardon me, the very compounds we're using to develop therapies are also the tools to answer your question. And, and um, uh, the last point I'll leave is, I do think you're asking the question that's missing in a lot of mitochondrial studies is, um, is um, just because mitochondria change in a disease doesn't mean it was a bad change. It might've been trying to uh, rewire metabolism. Stop there. Okay, <laughs> very clear. Thank you so much. Um, we are almost out of time, but I do want to just squeeze one very last question in. Uh, what specific opportunities does a program like this provide trainees, and do you see it benefiting their learning away from the bench? I think this is an important question, so I just want to squeeze that in in the last minute that we have. The, the program at, at uh, Muscular Dystrophy Canada, or, or just the greater idea, perhaps? Yeah, greater. both. Um, and, and the integration, was, probably. Um, yeah. So what was the, could you say it again? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. What specific opportunities does this provide trainees and how do you see it benefiting their learning away from the bench? Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, it can benefit them at the bench as well. And I should, I didn't really say that. They become inspired. And I've seen that when, when I already mentioned to Dr. Osman, we saw a patient with mitochondrial disease talk about the daily life. All the students were just quiet and I was quiet and we talked after literally almost in whispers like can you can you believe what that was like to hear that we've never heard that we went back more inspired so it benefits our bench research but you're asking a critical question about outside the bench I think it also builds the students networks with not-for-profit agencies I mean to work with Dr. Osman I wish I got to do that as a trainee to see how a not-for-profit works to see how an advocacy foundation works and, and not just as a potential career, but also shaping what, what is important to the trainee in getting something out of a career. Maybe they will see, wow, as much as I like research, hopefully, um, I, I also want to be a little more um, uh, at the front lines. And they may never have known of this opportunity. 
to be on the front lines working with people um, um, with, with these diseases. And so it exposes them to new career directions, but in a way that they can find something meaningful um, to, to guide that thinking. Um, and, um, and also, lastly, it's a transferable skill. For a trainee to to develop communication skills, like if trainees are most likely going to be um, creating, you know, five things to know about muscular dystrophy pamphlets that can be shared within their muscular disease con uh, community. Well, that means our trainees have to actually sit down and think: How do I take complex knowledge and cater it to the target audience that that has this lived experience? And maybe I need to contextualize some facts this way. I can't think of a single career that doesn't require that skill. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers, just like you, answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.